Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, townhall.com political editor, Fox News contributor, host of this fine program every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for tuning in. If you miss any of the show live, hey, podcast, free, on demand, every day, GuyBensonShow.com. In my capacity as a Fox News contributor, I'll be on a special report tonight with Brett Baer and that panel. In the 6 p.m. hour Eastern, that's Fox News Channel, I will also be at the center of the so-called virtual couch on outnumbered tomorrow, noon in the East, Fox News Channel. And of course, back here on the radio, as I am every weekday. Here's the lineup today here on the show. Kennedy is going to be here, and I'm excited to have a conversation with her. She is a dear friend, as many of you know. She also got COVID again for the second time over the holidays, and she was not a happy camper about it, and she said as much on her Fox Business Network program earlier in the week. She is here to speak her mind later this hour. I also want to ask her about the mess on I-95 in Virginia and the excuses being made by the government. We'll get to that with Kennedy. We will talk covid With Dr. Mark Siegel, I have a few questions for him, including about what they're talking, I guess, about a new variant in France. It's just, it's exhausting. But it's omnipresent. And we will talk to Dr. Siegel in our next hour. Our final hour will feature U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican South Carolina, looking forward to having him on the show. As always, Fox News alert as we begin. Stats, COVID cases, 57 million all in across the United States throughout the pandemic. The much, the much higher number is probably three or four times that for reasons that we've discussed before. The death toll, people dying in the United States with or of COVID, 828,436. I saw, by the way, that the state of New York, the governor has announced that they're going to try to start making some of these distinctions, at least clearer distinctions distinctions between people who are in the hospital because they are sick and sickened by COVID versus people who show up at the hospital for other reasons, get an automatic test as a matter of course, and test positive. Those hospitalizations are not the same. Fauci has finally started making this point. Now New York State is moving in that direction. It's about time. They should have done this from the very beginning. And you can't help but wonder, to some extent, if politics is involved in some of the decision-making, but it is what it is. Just want to bring you that little nugget. 
down day on Wall Street today. The Dow, which has been doing very well this week, is currently shedding 256 points, trading at 36,542. We'll bring you an update in the next hour after the markets close. I wanted to start today with a few sound bites and then a reaction from one of our colleagues at Fox News. Let's start with the President of the United States, who, by the way, just told Americans, oh, if you're having trouble getting a test, which many people are for COVID, you can uh, go on the old Google machine. He's like, Google it. Can you imagine in a huge testing shortage, President Trump saying, good luck, Google, okay, Google's your friend. I wonder how that would have been treated in the media. Now here's Biden saying, you got to go to the www.1800google.you-know-the-thing, and that's how you get your, your test. As an aside, we have spent, what, $5 trillion? $6 trillion over the last few years in COVID relief? Trillions. It's in the ballpark of 5 or $6 trillion. And we have a testing shortage? How is that possible? Where the hell did all that money go? Well, a lot of it was going not to COVID-related things, as we told you, especially about the $2 trillion Democratic bill that they passed at the very beginning of this administration. And they're reduced now to saying, oh, well, we're going to hope for the best. Go on to Google. We're going to try to get some tests. Gosh, we wish we had thought of that earlier. (laughs) It's amazing. So the president, Joe Biden, also had this to say yesterday, and it's a talking point that I think at this point is sort of uh, very much out of date. Let's listen to cut one. We have in hand all the vaccines we need to get every American fully vaccinated, including the booster shot. So there's no excuse, no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So we got to make more progress. And for patients who still haven't gotten your kids vaccinated, please get them vaccinated. All right. So he says this continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Now, if you go to my townhall.com work, I have a piece today on this very subject. And in that piece, I include several key charts demonstrating that the vaccinated remain much better protective, much much better protective, like 10 times more protected on hospitalizations and death than unvaccinated Americans from COVID. Now, Omicron might finally be changing things because it's much more mild. But overall, getting vaccinated is absolutely in your best interest for almost everyone, certainly adults. And the data and the numbers bear that out. It's why I have been vociferously, consistently pro-vaccine. But I think now to call this a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that might be true in terms of the disproportionate number of people dying from COVID. But in terms of the pandemic and people getting cases, that just is not the case anymore. I mean, Omicron is blowing through vaccinated people. Over the last few weeks, I probably personally know 12, maybe more, people who had or have COVID. All of them are vaccinated. 
So this talking point doesn't really align with what we're seeing, what we're witnessing. You can still make a good case, a powerful case for vaccination, as I just did. And I show my work and I have the stats at townhall.com in my latest piece. I urge you to read it and consider it. But to rely on this sort of stale talking point that does not resonate anymore with our lived experience, as they like to say, I don't think that that is accurate or productive. And you know who else feels the same way is our colleague at Fox News, Dana Perino. So Dana is not a bomb thrower, right? She's not out there with a bunch of red meat, partisan rhetoric. She thinks about what she says. She's level-headed. She deals in facts. This is why we love Dana. She also knows a thing or two about messaging, political messaging, right? She spoke for the president of the United States from the podium for a number of years. She is looking at what is being said by the president, what is being put out by the CDC, just this jumble. They have, by the way, at the CDC, updated their recommendations on the isolation. Remember, they cut it from 10 days to 5, but not for kids, because that makes no sense. But for adults, 10 days down to 5, and you don't have to get tested at the end of the 5 days. And people were mad about that, so they said, okay, maybe we're going to revisit that. And Fauci said, we're going to take another look. And it's, it's reasonable to get tested. So, I was, okay, they're going to flip-flop again. Then they kind of did a half flip-flop saying, no, we're not going to say that we recommend a test at the end of five days. But if you take one, if you can find one, by the way, and you test positive, then you should isolate for another five days. What? (laughs) What are the incentives there? Have they ever met people? Have the public health officials ever encountered, I don't know, the public? But kids, of course, they've, they've got to wait the full 10 days for reasons that, Uh, Just totally escaped me. So Dana was talking about all of this. She was talking about the testing problem. She was talking about how they were pretending that, oh, we didn't see this coming. We didn't know about the variants that were coming. They've contradicted themselves on that. They've contradicted themselves on testing. The explanations from the CDC that I just mentioned, it's just, you know, totally confusing, totally muddled. And Dana on the five last night, And I have the full clip at townhall.com. She wanted to get some stuff off of her chest. And you could tell that she had had it up to here. So for Dana, this is like fire emoji, frustration and anger. Here's how she ended this righteous, accurate, thoughtful rant on the five yesterday in cut 17. We have a serious communications problem. The Center for Disease Control is completely losing it with the American public. There's no credibility there, just when you might need it most. At this point, you cannot continue to divide the vaccinated from the unvaccinated when it comes to Omicron because everybody can spread it if you're vaccinated, if you're not vaccinated. So we need to be smart, do things like washing your hands, even things like, for example, in Japan, they have a very good culture of making sure if they're sick, they're very protective of the vulnerable. We can adopt things like that. But you cannot say that this is a, just a pandemic of the unvaccinated anymore. It is affecting all of us. I mean, how can you dispute that? She gave an example previously in the segment. 
She said, I got two vaccines. I got boosted. I also got a flu shot. And she was like on the mattress, sick as can be, was her quote, over Christmas, the whole week. She said she had negative tests. Then it turned positive. She went through that sort of miserable period of days and had to test negative again in order to come back to work. She's done every single thing asked of her, and she still got COVID. And it was not a pleasant experience. You can't just say it's a plague of the unvaccinated or a pandemic of the unvaccinated because that's not correct. Again, the data absolutely fortifies the argument for vaccination. There's a tiny sliver of people who probably shouldn't get vaccinated based on health conditions, and that's where they need to work with their own doctors. And they need to be given the space to do that, by the way. There's a very weak case, I would say, for vaccinating kids. Which is not to say they shouldn't be vaccinated. Again, this is family and doctor decisions. Even the people in favor of the vaccines, Dr. Gottlieb has said repeatedly, for example, this should not be mandated on kids. You should get vaccinated almost certainly if you're an adult to protect yourself very well against going to the hospital because of COVID or dying due to COVID. Those are pretty strong incentives. They were for me. And you don't lose sight of that message. In fact, in some ways, you strengthen that message if you don't get bogged down trying to insist on talking points that have expired that this is really just all about unvaccinated people when that is demonstrably not the case. It's another reason why people stop listening, stop paying attention. And it's a self-inflicted wound by the public health experts, many of them, and by the Biden administration, while they're also flailing and failing on monoclonal antibodies, certainly on testing. It's not just messaging. That's my only thing with Dana. She says this is a serious communications problem. Yes, it is also a serious policy and competence problem. That's the Biden administration right now. The shut down the virus administration. Yeah. Now, she's not the only one, Dana, feeling frustrated. So is Kennedy. I mentioned that she had COVID again over the holidays. I want to play some of what she had to say as soon as we come back before we interview her in the following segment in a discussion that you're really going to want to hear. Stay tuned. A lot to get to on today's Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. I think it's a disservice to say it's just by the unvaccinated because it's telling the vaccinated that you don't have a problem. You're not subject to Omicron and that's false. So it's not only incorrect information. I think it's doing a disservice to public health by blaming it on the unvaccinated people. This is a problem we all have to face. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was Admiral Brett Girard on America's Newsroom this morning with Dana Perino, whose words we featured in our previous segment. She's uh, fed up. She thinks the messaging is wrong. And so does that former 
top health official in the previous administration. Now, as I mentioned and teased, our friend Kennedy was back on the air after battling COVID a second time, and she had some thoughts in her opening monologue on Monday. We will discuss this with her coming up. Let's just listen to a bit of it. Cut 18. I recently had COVID again, so the virus has once again become intensely personal, and now I'm pissed. Like many of you, I took all the recommended steps and took the necessary precautions. But like a fool, I figured if I had been previously infected and vaccinated, well, I'd be safe. With a normal virus that naturally evolved, that might be the case. If you've had COVID, you know it is extremely unnatural and doesn't feel like anything you've experienced. Even if you had it mild, you know it's still weird. I do not buy this did some less than probable species hopping and conveniently infected the most vulnerable populations on the planet. In my opinion, it is an engineered virus and anyone who says a lab leak theory is conspiratorial speculation is full of guano. They all knew what could happen if an altered virus found its way into the world and their worst dreams have been realized. This virus sucks. And it's not the only thing that sucks, in her opinion. She just goes off. Go off, queen. Cut 19. And you know what? The communist Chinese government sucks for covering up evidence, destroying samples, blocking access, and jailing whistleblowers who knew the sickly genie was clearly out of the bottle. EcoHealth Alliance sucks. Anthony Fauci sucks. Francis Collins sucks. They all suck. And... They all knew what would happen if a virus like this spread, and even the tests that are supposed to detect it, they suck, and they're almost impossible to access. My daughter tested negative at a clinic on a rapid test. The PCR was positive, but it took 10 days to come back. As a vaccinated person, I contracted COVID from another vaccinated person. So whoever is still chirping this godforsaken bug is being solely uh, transmitted by the unvaccinated is also full of the hottest garbage. And they suck, too. <laughs> OK, well, tell us how you really feel, Kennedy. And she will when she comes up in the next segment. And look, I've now made this point, what, three or four times myself, Dana, Admiral Girard, Kennedy, and some people might, oh, well, he's pandering to the unvaccinated people. No. I, that's not what I'm doing at all. I've encouraged everyone to get vaccinated for good reason, and I got into those reasons for the umpteenth time in the previous segment. It's not like you're letting people off the hook and saying, oh, yeah, vaccines were a bad idea all along. No, they're a good idea. They still are a good idea. What is actually wrong and inaccurate is saying this is all about the unvaccinated and making them a scapegoat to paper over other scientific realities and other policy failures. That's the point that I'm making. And Kennedy will help me make it further next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Delighted to have you along here on the Guy Benson Show. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Plus bonus Benson on the weekends. 
on the free podcast, all at GuyBensonShow.com. And by the way, we are extra thrilled this week to welcome into the Guy Benson Show family, WENGAM, 1530 and FM 98.1 and 107.5 in Southwest Florida. Welcome in. We are glad you're here. The water's fine. We hope you enjoy it. We've got a few other new affiliates in the pipeline as well. We're excited about that. And just thank you all for helping us grow. Let's also thank our next guest, just for her existence. She's fantastic. She hosts the appropriately named autonomous and eponymous Kennedy on the Fox Business Network, Monday through Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. She is at Kennedy Nation on social media. She is indeed Kennedy. Happy New Year, Kennedy. It is great to have you back. Happy New Year to you. I hope that you were not uh, plagued by the virus. Well, I personally was not, but basically everyone else in my house was. So between Christmas Eve and literally today, I had someone who was positive for COVID in this house the entire time. Uh, So that was fun. Very fun holidays. Uh, Dad, brother, and Adam finally tested negative today at lunch, and he was very happy. It was like he like got out of prison. He was pleased. But as you know, uh, it is stressful. It is not pleasant. And we played some of your sound bites from your monologue on Monday talking about this in the last segment, just setting up this interview. And I just have to say this, Kennedy, we are close friends. We hang out. You officiated my wedding. I rarely see angry Kennedy. And I admit I'm a slightly scared of angry Kennedy. And it, she, she comes out occasionally, and when she does, I'm like, whoop, I'm going to go hide under a desk somewhere. You were really ticked off. Talk about why. Um, I've just been, you know, it's like in my house the entire two and a half weeks. Uh, I walk around just going, screw China. The Biden administration sucks. They don't take anything seriously. They're not telling us the truth. I'm really mad at China, and I feel like there has been absolutely no transparency or accountability and uh you know what they've done in terms of covering up what they know about the virus is a crime against humanity and there's no other way to see it and the fact that this administration has not been putting the screws to china on a number of things but especially this when you have 800,000 dead americans and they're dead because of this virus and uh this virus originated in china and there's much more we need to know about this to make any conclusive declaration but so far the uh the evidence it's it's not coming in in china's favor no and that's why they destroyed the evidence and wouldn't allow access to impartial people to to go check out that evidence because they know what it shows i think that is actually a very significant strand of evidence pointing toward the thesis that you're advancing here. And this is a point that I know you've made, I've made it before. The lab leak theory was treated like crackpot nuttery. You couldn't talk about it. You could get suspended or banned from any of these platforms because it was misinformation. Then it became maybe not so misinformation. And there's, I think, a very good chance it is simply information. It's been a very frustrating sort of uh, evolution to watch that happen. And we cannot, you're right, say conclusively this is what happened. But one thing that I found intriguing about your monologue the other day on your show on Fox Business was just the feeling that you had 
physically, literally, that this was not a natural or normal virus. And I think that probably resonates with a number of people who've suffered from it. You've now gone through it twice, which really stinks. Another friend of mine, Kennedy, had it back-to-back Christmases. And he was fully vaccinated and boosted. And, I, like, it's frustrating, right? You do everything that you're supposed to do that you're told. Then you still have these two bouts of suffering. What was it physically that at least made you feel like, now this is not just a cold. This is something, in your words, engineered. Yeah, so I've had bronchitis. I've had pneumonia. I've had the flu. And uh, my lungs have never felt like this. And uh, in addition to that, like, the feeling, uh, the spacey, disconnected, dissociated feeling, um, you know, it, it's something that, that people are experiencing far and wide. And, you know, I've had so many friends who, who say things like, I feel like I was drugged. You know, I, I feel like I would flip something because this is so uncomfortable and so unnatural. I've never felt this way. But you have that in combination with a dry cough and you know, a good friend of mine, her face was buzzing for two weeks. Another friend had a horrible vertigo that still hasn't gone away. Uh, and that's in addition to losing your sense of taste and smell. You know, and you put all of these things together. And for those of us who've yeah. had it twice, like now we have something to compare it to. And so there, there are so many similarities between both iterations of the virus that I had. And, you know, people have been getting mad at me on both sides on Twitter but the anti-vax people are like, why would you be so stupid to put something like that in your body? And I tell them it's because I had it so bad the first time I never wanted to get it again. And so, you know, it's like I've done everything you're supposed to do. Uh, I'm a lifelong germ freak. And, you know, maybe that weakened my immune system. Who knows? Was it less bad the second time? Yes, because the Omicron variant doesn't go into your lungs the way of uh, the original COVID did. And right. uh, that's what was, that was, that's what was so scary. The first time was it took so long to get my test result back. that I didn't know if I had COVID and I didn't want to go to the hospital, but I had such a hard time breathing. And, you know, it, it's a really scary, paralyzing feeling. Well, and so, and this and time I got, you know, pretty bad bronchitis, but it didn't go into my lungs. And that is blessedly one of the changes with Omicron. But it's actually pretty amazing because you were, I believe, the first person that I personally knew who got it. And it was we had been in fact, I was exposed to COVID by you unwittingly, obviously, in New York shortly after our friend Mary Catherine's wedding. We were up there. I was doing your show and I think we were on set on radio as well. And then you got super sick. It was COVID. You Flash forward now, that was March 2020. It's now January 2022, almost two years later. It was almost impossible to get tests then. It's crazy hard to get tests now in a timely fashion. That was another one of your points. That, to me, is extraordinary. You got this president, and I've made this point a thousand times now, but I think we're going to keep making it as long as the problem persists. This president got elected in large measure saying, we're going to shut down the virus. We're going to bring it back to normal. These other guys totally screwed it up and they hate science. And a lot of Americans said, you know what? That sounds good to us. The drama is too much. Let's go in another direction. We've spent what, $5 trillion 
on emergency COVID spending, including $2 trillion this year, and we can't get rapid tests to people easily in cities and other places? It's, it's mind-blowing to me. Yeah, now what we're hearing is the administration was telling uh, test-making companies, don't worry about it, we're going to handle the tests at clinics and hospitals. We, we don't need the at-home tests. And that was a decision that the federal government made, and now this is a created crisis at the hands of the federal government. But, you know, the, the bigger issue is they went all in on the vaccine, and they went all in as though it was a zero-sum game, that if you chose one, uh, you yes. didn't have to. Thank you. You didn't have to choose <laughs> any of the others, and you actually shouldn't choose any other option. But you should really choose every option. So there should have been... Testing, vaccines, treatments, antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, every possible thing that, you know, we could imagine all at the same time. And if you have five trillion dollars going toward that stuff, there's absolutely no excuse to not have been developing every single one. Well, it's, it's because the dollars weren't all going, and most of the trillions weren't going towards those things. And that's what Republicans were warning about in this most recent deal, the partisan bill, uh, under the Biden administration in those early months. They said so much of this stuff has nothing to do with fighting COVID, and here we are. The all-of-the-above strategy, the buffet that you're talking about, was not being adequately funded. We didn't have warp speed on all these successful treatments and other things. We didn't have warp speed on getting you know, tests everywhere where it's like coming out of your eyeballs. You, you can trip over a test on the street. It should be that easy, but it's not, and you're exactly right. It was zero sum. And this is what's being reported. Vanity Fair had a big report over the holidays. We talked about it yesterday. The Biden administration calculated in their weird, like, you know, government psychology experiment, saying if we make tests too available... That might hurt our goal over here on getting people to get vaccinated. So let's not go that direction. And boy, they're paying a price for it right now. Kennedy, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about another crisis that unfolded here in the D.C. area this week. And uh, because you are a proud libertarian and someone who is, I think, healthily skeptical of government at all levels, but especially the higher up the food chain you get. Uh, This might be a story that is right up your alley. We covered it yesterday, this I-95 disaster in Virginia. And a lot of the roads, by the way, in Washington, D.C., not seeing a snowplow like for a full day with the blizzard. And I I use that term loosely. It was like seven inches of snow. Okay, not exactly... Uh, A freak storm. Everyone knew it was coming. Not an unbearable, shocking amount of snow. It was just, you know, a a fairly heavy snowfall in an area that gets occasionally fairly heavy snowfalls. And yet you had plows, what, nowhere to be seen in much of Washington, D.C. for a day. You had people stuck, including a Virginia U.S. senator, on I-95 for 26 and a half hours. And... What the Virginia government, still under Northam control and the Democratic government, what they're saying is, oh, gosh, we're sorry. That really stinks. We wish that hadn't happened. There's nothing we could have done. And, uh, you know, people should have heeded our warnings that there was snow coming. And it's like, excuse me, they have, like, all year 
to get ready for an event like this. It happens maybe every other winter, something like this. The D.C. area, these governments, they look around like, oh, gosh, what should we do? And then for them to tell branded motorists, really, it's their fault. Nothing could be done. It's crazy. Buffalo deals with this like every day in the winter pretend oh there's nothing we possibly could have done to get ready for this and it was just factors outside of our control there were people who were stuck there saying there were a bunch of government signs almost mocking them along the highway saying mask up save lives wear a mask and they're sitting there for the 24th hour freezing in their car with no food no gas with their kids and the government's like, oh, well, I mean, it's, you know, you shouldn't have gone out and we couldn't have done any better. We could have done nothing differently. The whole point of this mini tirade here, candidate, is that we have a lot of people in this country just fanatically dedicated to the proposition that we need more government all the time. Whatever government we have is the bare minimum separating us from immense human suffering. And we have to have more government as much as possible every year inexorably higher and higher because that's what compassion requires or whatever but these are the people who believe in government the strongest there's seven inches of snow on the ground and people are stuck in their cars for more than a day and they're sort of like eh. i feel like this should be an object lesson for people and if you're the governor you declare an emergency and you move hell and high water you take all of your resources and you mobilize them immediately. And you right. figure it's the out point of the government. It's the point. Stuck. You get people there to keep them safe. And you make sure that anyone who's most vulnerable has exactly what they need to stay warm and alive. And they, they didn't even do that. And then Kamala Harris tweets, you know, it's like, hey, America's <laughs> moving. It's like, sure didn't feel like it. And you didn't see this coming after a long holiday weekend. You didn't see a bunch of people taking a major interstate. So, yes, that is like the one function of government. When, when people complain to libertarians, like, oh, so you don't want firefighters and roads? It's like, yeah, well, guess what? You have roads. You have trillions of dollars to maintain those roads. So do what it takes to clear them and make sure that people can keep moving instead of touting that falsely in a toned-up tweet. I almost feel bad for Kamala Harris for that. No, it's it's Veep come to life all the time with her. Her infrastructure answer in that interview recently was just absolute cringe. Um, it's it's entertaining, and I I would feel a little bit bad, but not too bad. This is this is their decision. This is the person that they put on the ticket. This is the person they elected. Finally, Kennedy, we have about a minute, maybe a minute and a half left. On a happier note, was there a highlight? of your Christmas holiday season, even though you had a tough time, you had COVID again, was there something that brought you joy that you can share with us to brighten our day? Uh, the fact that my girls and I all had COVID at the same time, and we carried on with a very merry and lethargic Christmas. There was something <laughs> super sweet about it. Um, I We were supposed to go to Portland to see my family, so I made a bunch of food and froze it ahead of time. So everything I had made... Uh, we just we put in the fridge and defrosted, and we had homemade cinnamon rolls and my mom's souffle recipe on Christmas morning, and carrot ginger soup and a giant ham, and we ended up having a really great day. Well, that is wonderful, and we are so glad 
to hear that you are sounding good and that you're feeling good again, finally that you've recovered again. And uh, the good news is now we've both had COVID, what, a combined three times? We have, a, what, a combined something like five shots and, and three bouts of COVID. So we can just, like, hang out and breathe all over each other and have drinks, and we should be okay, I think, knock on wood. Yeah, we should get that Canadian private jet and just go for it. <laughs> right. See you in New York sometime soon. Kennedy will be watching 7 p.m. Eastern, Fox Business Network. It's Kennedy Monday through Thursday. Uh, we love you. Talk to you soon, Kennedy. I love you guys. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And we're back here on The Guy Benson Show. I've seen some liberals and Democrats celebrating online because so far the Democrats in some of the states where they control the process have been doing some pretty hardcore gerrymandering in their favor in the uh, reapportionment and the realignment for the congressional districts. And of course, we have to remember gerrymandering is bad and a tool against democracy only when Republicans do it. When it's Democrats gerrymandering Republicans out of seats, then it's just great because triumphing good over evil is the right thing to do, and that's how they view this. It's just, you know, good when we do it, the Democrats, bad when they do it, the Republicans. So because of the hardcore gerrymandering in some of these blue states, it looks like the map might be a little bit more favorable across the country in 2022 than was expected. And so the layup that people expected for Republicans to win the House might be a little bit more contested, but it's still looking like a pretty strong Republican year. Yet another House Democrat announcing that she will not seek re-election. This is Brenda Lawrence of Michigan. That's number 25 so far. With the last Democrat left, turn the lights out. So a few things on either side of the ledger there. Middle hour of the Guy Benson Show. Dr. Siegel upcoming. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour of 3, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free if you can't listen live. Of course, we encourage listening live if you can. GuyBensonShow.com. On the TV side, in my Fox News duties, tonight, special report with Brett Baer. I'll be on the panel. Tomorrow, I'll be co-hosting Outnumbered, noon Eastern time. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. Not a great day on Wall Street. Just a sea of red across the big board. The Dow Closing down 392 points, so a big sell-off at the end of the day, finishing at 36,407. Joining me now is Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel, author of COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science, Twitter at D-R-M-A-R-C-S-I-E-G-E-L, Dr. Mark Siegel. Great to have you back. Happy New Year, Doctor. Guy, great to be on with you. Happy New Year. Well, one of the controversies today is in the city of Chicago, which has joined, in my view, far too many school districts and schools around the country that have once again closed their doors to students because of COVID, in this case, the 
Omicron surge. The Chicago Teachers Union saying that 73% of their members, almost three out of four, voted not to come into work. They say they're still negotiating. They have new demands. We've seen this in other cities as well. I mean, I thought we had learned our lesson on children and COVID and externalities and all sorts of negative ripple effects of keeping kids out of school. Now we have, yes, a very prevalent but more mild variant, and it's like the rake is being stepped on again. From a medical perspective, your reaction to what happened and is still happening in Chicago and elsewhere. Well, I don't think anyone's going to want to live in a city for very long, are they? I mean, you know, we live here in New York, and it's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's better when it comes to schools, that's for sure right now. Uh, and uh, I hope it'll stay that way here. But, you know, interestingly, in Chicago, Governor Pritzker of Illinois is not agreeing with this. I mean, she says schools should be open in Chicago, and they should have timeouts, a couple of days of a reset if there's outbreaks in the school where they can figure out a better mitigating strategy. That's public health. What closing the schools is, is the teachers' union taking care of teachers who want to work by Zoom. That's, it's not even that they canvass their teachers, because a lot of teachers are actually committed to taking care of kids. So if there was any vestige of thinking that the teachers' unions were on behalf of the kids, that's out the window, because the evidence has been there for months and months and months that kids are badly damaged. And what really yep. got me the most, Guy, one, one point on this is the huge worldwide study out of Lancet that canvassed, I think, 35 countries and determined that it was mobility, that it, kids needs to, need to move. And when they're home, they're not moving the way they are with their kids, with their friends at school. And of course, what are they doing? Spreading COVID at home. Where's the teacher's union evidence? that they're going to spread more COVID in school. They're going to spread more at home. Yeah, it's gotten so bad that when you have the governor of Illinois, the mayor of Chicago, both liberal Democrats just uh, reading the riot act to the teachers union, uh, you sort of wonder if there might be some sort of shift underway here, certainly on public opinion. I hope that parents across the nation have paid very close attention. It's not just Chicago and the teachers union now in 2022. It's a lot of teachers unions in a lot of other places over the last year and a half. Long after we had good data, we've been a global outlier on schools when it comes to closures, masking, all this stuff. And a lot of that can be laid at the feet of the teachers unions and all of their money that they give to the Democratic Party, where I guess the Democrats are now looking around in a bit of a panic about this important constituents versus, uh, constituency versus a lot of parents and looking at what happened in Virginia. Uh, we'll see how that all plays right, out. But the, on, the, on the medicine and the science, I mean, you've made the point, Doctor. It's, it's pretty clear. I want to make a historical point here, by the way. This is a warning. For those of you who like to say that kids are resilient, and they are, they're way more resilient than us, here's the historical warning. Kids that grew up during World War II, it stayed with them. Kids that, that grew up in the early 60s and the mid-60s, like I did under the Cold War, it stayed with us. We didn't know when a nuclear bomb was going to go off. Kids that grew up post-9-11, I wrote a book about this, how it punctured the psyche of America, including our kids. Our kids were shaken by 9-11, and now we're doing it to them again, and we're doing it deliberately, and we're doing it without any science to back it up. Yeah, and that's the thing, and, and I made the point yesterday, kids actually are resilient when it comes to COVID. If they get COVID, they shake it right off for the most part they're like the the least vulnerable demographic in the world they are physically extremely resilient 
against COVID, less so against COVID-related you know, lockdowns and restrictions and the things that some people are insisting on inflicting yet again on these kids. It's just unconscionable. Doctor, I want to shift here. Here's a question. It's sort of a technical question, and I'm asking a number of doctors about it because I've now been asked by a couple of friends, and I don't have a great answer to it. One of the big risks and threats out there with COVID, and when I was trying to make a case for people to get vaccinated, which I still do on a regular basis, I think it's the right thing to do, and there's all sorts of benefits, and the data speaks for itself. But one of the reasons that I said, like, okay, you're young, you're healthy, you don't have any known comorbidities, why get the shots? Why be really worried about COVID at all? One of my answers was long COVID, because I know a few people who have it, and it sounds like a complete nightmare to to them and their experience. The question now on Omicron, probably too early to have great data on this, but based on what we know, is the risk of long COVID the same under Omicron? Is it less? Is it non-existent? Do you have any data on that so far? That's such a well-framed question. I'm going to say that by the end of this pandemic, the never-ending Democrat pandemic, I think that Guy Benson is going to end up becoming a, an anointed honorary MD by me. With that <laughs> I kind don't of know question. about that, but, but God but forbid. Here's, here's the answer to that. It's um, Some of this is not yet known, but I'll tell you the good side of this. For sure, Omicron is more of an upper respiratory bug than previous iterations, than Delta, meaning that you're not going to see as much lung damage. For sure, we're seeing less loss of smell and taste. And by the way, for those of you who poo-poo that, I have many patients that say, you know, coffee smells like X, which I don't want to say. I mean, you know, like literally things that you love to smell in the morning, you know, you don't get it back at six months. That's a serious complication, loss of smell or change of smell to something. That's not, we're not seeing that with Omicron so far. Um, I, it's does that mean, just to, just to jump in, does that mean, and again, too early to say, I grant that point entirely, but just initially here, based on what you just described, if it attacks the lungs differently and less badly, and if there's less of a neurological impact on things like taste and smell in Omicron, that would at least, there, there'd be a decent thesis there or a decent hypothesis that Omicron will produce a lot less long COVID. Is that a fair hypothesis? Yeah, but I would leave out of that a couple of things that are, I'm still monitoring very closely, which is okay. one is the cognitive part. You know, you may, you, again, you're doing all your reading because you're going to tell me that the loss of smell and taste correlates with confused thinking, and that's correct. That study's correct. So I don't, but I'm, I'm watching for that, the cognitive issues, because there's plenty of people from Delta, teenagers, that ended up still taking longer to complete text, tests and thinking okay. issues. I'm worried about, I'm looking at that, and fatigue and muscle aches and those things can persist too. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching it. It's not going to be a zero game. We're going to say everybody in the lower risk group is, is over COVID, has no long-term effects. It's not going to be that, but it, it looks better than Delta for sure. If you can give a quick, succinct answer to this, because it's another thing that's cropping up. Some folks who aren't vaccinated, haven't gotten vaccinated, are either saying, why would I even bother at this point? If it's Omicron, it's less severe. Everyone's getting it. What's the point of getting vaccinated? Uh, what would your response be? And then there's also some people who aren't vaccinated saying they feel vindicated by the Omicron wave affecting vaccinated people, like it was the right decision not to get vaccinated. What would be your respectful response to those points? 
Actually, I'm going to take this one right from Robert Redfield, former CDC director, who I've interviewed multiple times, uh, including the other day. And he likes to say the more immunity you have, the better. It's not an either or. That's a political distinction, an either or. Listen, here's what we know about Omicron. It reinfects you if you had Delta. It reinfects you if you had a booster. It reinfects you if you had five boosters. So you get a milder case in each of those instances. If you had COVID before and you had Delta and you get Omicron, going to be milder. If you had the booster, going to be milder. So why wouldn't you maximize your immunity against something that's going to reinfect you no matter what? It's those that had COVID, guy, and, the, and then get boosted and then get Omicron that get the mildest cases of all. And that's what I would want. The, I'd want a stuffed nose. I wouldn't want all of this fatigue and coughing and, and, and fevers. So the more immunity you have, the better. We're in an imperfect situation. The mRNA vaccines are terrific, but they don't work as well against mutated variants, even mild ones like this. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong. I mean, that doesn't mean they're no good. They're wonderful, but they're limited. Fair enough. And I think, you know, if you're going to play the game of Russian roulette, everybody reacts differently to the virus. That's also a, a key point in this. We've got to leave it there for now. Dr. Mark Siegel here on The Guy Benson Show. Always appreciate it, doctor. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Halfway through the week, a brand new year on The Guy Benson Show. We're glad to have you here I want to drill down a bit on something that we touched on yesterday, and I want to ask Senator Tim Scott about it coming up in the next hour as well. And some of this might feel like in-the-weeds, ultra-detailed, abstruse D.C. jargon. But the fight over the filibuster I actually think is very important. And we've been through this before. We might be going through it again. And the bottom line, the reason that I'm highlighting this, aside from the fact that it's in the news and the Democrats are rattling their sabers and making threats, is that I really do think that from where we stand right now, this most recent flare-up underscores how bad Chuck Schumer is at his job. Chuck Schumer is not an effective leader, which is something that I think conservatives should be grateful for. I think this guy is not exactly sure where his party is headed. He's constantly, like Pelosi, trying to appease the hard left. He might be looking over his shoulder at a possible primary challenge. What is AOC up to in New York? That sort of thing. He also has absolutely no shame whatsoever which is in some ways a strength because he knows that the media generally will cover for him. But it's also a weakness because it makes it very easy, like fish in a barrel, to point out the hypocrisies. When Joe Biden comes out with some new left-wing thing, you can almost guarantee that over the last, how many decades has it been, of his career in Washington, Biden has said or done the opposite before including on the issue of the filibuster, which he strongly supported and engaged in as a senator. Now, all of a sudden, it's racist. It's a relic. It's Jim Crow in disguise. They all do this stuff. And I know that the conventional wisdom, it's kind of lazy among the press, is, oh, both sides are very hypocritical on the filibuster. 
Well, the Democrats are much worse on this issue. Republicans have not always covered themselves in glory, but they've been a lot more consistent over the years. And the Democrats, it really does not take a keen political understanding to see exactly how they make their decisions, i.e. immediate political interest and expediency. And even when they do something and get burned by their own short-sighted power-hungriness, it's like they have amnesia. And after getting hurt by it, they say, oh yes, we wish we hadn't done that. And then the next opportunity comes where they feel like it might benefit them in the moment, and they're chomping at the bit again. Like greedy children. They wring their hands about our democracy being in peril. They wring their hands about norms and institutions and the destruction that Donald Trump tried to wreak on our norms and institutions. And yet, whenever a norm or an institution stands in their way of what they want, they have no problem actively seeking to blow it up. From talking about packing the Supreme Court, to reforming the Electoral College, you hear constant complaints about the U.S. Senate being anti-democratic, as if that were not literally part of the design under the Constitution that the founders and the framers set out. And one norm in the important institution of the United States Senate is the ability to filibuster for a long time virtually anything, including nominations, and the Democrats blew that up, and then that blew up in their faces. I could go into the whole history of that. We don't have time. In a nutshell... Starting with Robert Bork back in the 1980s, all the way through until President Trump. Democrats at every turn in the judicial confirmation wars engaged in unilateral escalations, often unprecedented, to get their way. And when the Republicans would catch up, the shoe would be on the other foot. The Republicans would force the Democrats to live by the standards they had set. They would then, the Democrats, seek a new, unprecedented, unilateral escalation. And on and on it went. And now that pattern is threatening to jump from the judicial confirmation wars, which is hyper-toxic as an area of our politics, into the battle over legislation and the ability to filibuster legislation and the 60-vote threshold on most votes on most pieces of legislation and bills in the U.S. Senate. You now have most Senate Democrats on the record saying that they are willing to amend or alter the legislative filibuster on so-called voting rights legislation. That's the carve-out that they say they would like to create. Because the argument goes... Our democracy is under attack, and it's in grave peril, and therefore the right to vote is in grave peril, and these Jim Crow-style laws are cropping up everywhere, so the federal government has to take over everything. And if you disagree, you're a racist who hates democracy. Now, they were trying to do the exact same thing a few years ago, and they had other justifications for it. Oh, Stacey Abrams got robbed in Georgia. No, she didn't. 
that's actually an attack on democracy, denying the result of an election. They all cheered and went along with it. When Abrams did it in Georgia, they were all horrified when Trump did it. Both of those things were bad. But again, it's just so tribal and so partisan all the time. The hypocrisy is absolutely shameless. And on that exact point, boy, do we have some audio to play for you. I have a lot more to say on this. It's important. Stay tuned. It's The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are halfway through the Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show, and I'm walking through some of the hypocrisy here, and this matters a lot, of the Senate Democrats, Chuck Schumer, their leader in particular, and what they're trying to do. So their latest thing is like January 6th, democracy under attack, Jim Crow 2.0, that whole category of talking points. They need, in their minds, a partisan federal takeover of all the elections in this country. Of federal elections, they want to take it away from the states, do a top-down thing from Washington, which very well may be unconstitutional, but they want to try. They want to rig the system in their favor to help them win more elections. That's just the reality. And they will lie and lie and lie about what states are doing at the local level, Georgia, Texas, etc., in order to justify the panic and the emergency that they are trying to gin up and use that as the fig leaf for their power grab. Now, they cannot do that with the filibuster in place. You need 60 votes. They're nowhere close to that. So they'd have to dismantle the legislative filibuster in order to even have a chance to get it done, even though Joe Manchin is not on board for the Democrats' bill. They're thinking, oh, maybe we can do a different legislation with him. Maybe we can. It's all irrelevant if they can't get to 60, which they can't. And so here we go. The carve-out that they're talking about is ridiculous. It doesn't exist. Once you do a carve-out for one type of super important legislation where you can go around the filibuster and change the rules in your favor, then the whole filibuster is gone. Because the next time you want to do something that you think is important, you'll say, look, well, we did the carve-out for that thing, and that was important, but this other thing is also really important. Both parties will do it. The filibuster would be gone. Chuck Schumer has endorsed this. He wants to do it. He's gotten even so-called moderates, like Mark Warner in Virginia, coming out saying, well, I'm skeptical, but this is so important we have to do it. You've got so-called moderates, like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, who wants to be a senator who wants to campaign now on getting rid of the filibuster, but only on voting rights. I put that term in quotes. Now, here's what's so ridiculous about it, because it's not ridiculous on its face. It's actually quite dangerous and quite serious. And if Democrats pick up seats in the Senate in 2022 or in the future, they're letting us know very clearly what they would do. They want to absolutely fundamentally change norms and institutions in this country to benefit them politically. They are not being ambiguous about it. Now, they don't quite have enough votes yet to do it. They are officially two votes short, I would say. Unofficially, probably more, because there's a few others rumored to not like the idea. Even Dianne Feinstein said this publicly. There's a few others who are anxious about it, because a lot of them still remember last time they blew up the filibuster in a nuclear option on judges. 2013, Harry Reid, who recently passed away, I hope his family finds peace. You never want to lose a loved one. It's tough around the holidays. 
His legacy, I think, was quite destructive. He was my least favorite member of Congress, as a matter of fact. Part of that has to do with this, his willingness to lie without regret and smear people, which he did routinely. But they decided in that chain that I talked about of unilateral escalations to nuke the filibuster because the Republicans were doing something that they, the Democrats, had pioneered on judicial nominations during the Obama presidency. And within just a few years, Mitch McConnell warned them, you're going to come to regret this maybe soon. And they all laughed because they were going to win and be in power, certainly for 2016 and beyond. And then, oops, Donald Trump was president and we have dozens of circuit court and district court judges, maybe hundreds, three Supreme Court nominees, now confirmed sitting justices. Thanks to the Reid rule and the previous nuclear detonation from the Democrats, some of them remember that. A lot of them have said, oh, we regret that. Chuck Schumer said it. Oh, I wish that hadn't happened. He went along with it. He argued that oh, behind closed doors, I was against it. But ultimately, Chuck Schumer went along with it, as did almost all of the Democrats. They nuked the filibuster, and then it singed them badly. Just a few years later, just like Cocaine Mitch promised and predicted it would. So you had them in that period of pain saying, oh, golly, we we wish that hadn't happened. That was so unfortunate. They did it. Guys, you are responsible for that. You did it. And your expressions of regret mean nothing if you're going to then try to do the exact same thing again, which is what they are talking about doing actively right now. Schumer himself says he regrets that it happened, but now he's endorsed doing the same thing but having it be on the legislative side. Almost all of the Senate Democrats are saying that they want to do this. Now, what's amazing about this, and we'll get to the hypocrisy sound bites, you have to hear these, on Schumer. We'll get to that in a second. But I want you to think about this. On the tactical and strategic level, they've just had a huge face plant on Build Back Better, fortunately. Joe Manchin said, no, we're not going there. I'm a no. Now, I know there's all these reports out there that they're negotiating something new, and maybe they'll get around to it. Manchin said yesterday, I've had no debate, discussions, negotiations on this stuff since my announcement. So it's unclear if they're making any progress, because there seems to be a story out there versus Manchin saying, no, we're not doing that. So they face plan on Build Back Better. Their base is absolutely furious. The progressives are ticked off something awful, because they had predicted it. That's why they were holding the infrastructure bill hostage for so long. They didn't trust the moderates. They thought they might not get Build Back Better ultimately. That's exactly what ended up happening. And what Chuck Schumer did in his infinite wisdom was shift his attention to another issue. Be like, okay, guys, let's distract over here. Let's talk about voting rights, quote unquote, and the filibuster. Now, he has to know he doesn't have the votes to change the filibuster and therefore doesn't have the votes to do this voting rights stuff. But I guess he decided it was enough of a shiny object that it could distract and detract from the failure previously to get everyone all whipped up on another front. But that's going to end in failure as well. Because despite the fact that you have a lot of people lining up, willing to walk the plank, Democrats are often willing to do this. Just walk the plank. On the filibuster, they don't have the actual numbers that they need. It's a 50-50 Senate. That's the other breathtaking thing. It's a 50-50 Senate, and they're treating this like they have a 30-seat majority and a 100-seat majority in the House, and they're going to transform the whole country 
when the Congress is basically tied, and literally tied in the Senate, two of the Democratic senators are on the record as against altering the filibuster rules. Kirsten Sinema reportedly said so again today. She's not going to do it. She said it repeatedly. It's like Groundhog Day. And Joe Manchin, for the approximately 700th time, said the same thing. In fact, he had a soundbite saying, look, this thing blows back on you. When you do it on your own, one side, and you blow the thing up, it ends up blowing back on your own side. It's a very heavy lift. Translation, I'm still a no. So Schumer is shepherding expectations once again from one thing that they didn't have the votes for to another thing that they don't have the votes for. That will again inflame and infuriate his own base. It's very stupid. For a guy who doesn't seem to be a blithering idiot, he is not exactly a master tactician. Whatever you think of Mitch McConnell, McConnell is about seven steps ahead of Chuck Schumer almost all the time. And finally here, just to illustrate how absolutely fraudulent these talking points are, and how there's no integrity on this issue, particularly from Schumer and his ilk, I just want to remind you of what the same exact man, Chuck Schumer, who's pushing to nuke the filibuster on legislation now, that he's the majority leader, with the Democrats in charge by a 50-50 plus one vote. This is what the same Chuck Schumer said about altering the filibuster for judges back in 2005 when the Republicans were just talking about doing it. They didn't. They ended up backing away. They were too concerned about norms and institutions. They didn't do it. They came up with a compromise with the Democrats. A few years later, the Democrats did do this thing anyway because it was their turn to be annoyed. And they followed through. But at the time in 2005, Chuck Schumer was red hot. He was furious that even on judges, the filibuster might be touched or tampered with at all. He called it a doomsday for democracy if it were to happen, if the Republicans were to do what the Democrats ended up doing themselves a few years later. Here's Schumer in his high dudgeon, 2005, cut 21. Bottom line is very simple. The ideologues in the Senate want to turn what the founding fathers called the cooling saucer of democracy into the rubber stamp of dictatorship. We will not let them. Dictatorship. They want, because they can't get their way on every judge, to change the rules in midstream, to wash away 200 years of history. They want to make this country into a banana republic, where if you don't get your way, you change the rules. Are we going to let them? No! It'll be a doomsday for democracy if we do. A dictatorship, a banana republic, a doomsday for democracy if the Republicans in 2005 did the thing that Democrats then did in 2013 when the shoe was on the other foot. And then it blew up. And the Republicans won, and the Democrats were licking their wounds. But here they are again. They want to do it again. I will note, by the way, that his fervent defense there of the filibuster, even on judges, he said that's the will of the founding fathers, the cooling saucer of democracy. That's what the U.S. Senate is. They want to change that by changing the rules, blah, blah, blah. That same tool that he was holding up as the protector 
of our republic. That's the exact same tool that Democrats, of course, use whenever they're in the minority, including just for the last, what, four years? Up until this current unified Democratic government, they use the filibuster all the time. It was a feature of democracy, a vital one. Now it's racist. Now that it's the Republicans in the minority, the Republicans using the filibuster, it's a racist relic of Jim Crow. You see how this game is played? It's not subtle at all what they do. All right, so 2005, that might sound like ancient history. What about 2017? Donald Trump has been inaugurated. The Republicans have full control of Washington like the Democrats do now. Democrats are freaking out. Most of them in the Senate signed this letter pressing Mitch McConnell and the Republicans saying, we need to protect the legislative filibuster. Well, we may have blown it up on judges. We regret that. But we need to protect it on the legislative filibuster. This is so important. And Donald Trump, by the way, as president, repeatedly asked the Republicans to change the rules and end the filibuster to get stuff through. And the Republicans said no, even though it would be tempting on, for example, police reform. We'll talk to Tim Scott, as I mentioned, coming up in the next hour or on some late term abortion ban legislation supported by the majority of the American people filibustered by the Democrats or funding for building the wall on the southern border. You can go on. Democrats filibustered that stuff. Republicans were under pressure to change the rules. They didn't even come close to doing it because they actually agreed in 2017, let's have a little bit of a de-escalation here. We agree we're not going to touch this tool. You like it when you're in the minority. We're frustrated now because we're in the majority, but one day we'll be back in the minority. Let's go along with this. Let's have a bit of an armistice here. And one of the leading defenders of that and the proponents of protecting the legislative filibuster was Charles Schumer of New York. I will once again play you his words as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We return to The Guy Benson Show. Where were we? Ah, yes. We were exposing in vivid detail the absolute hypocrisy of Chuck Schumer. And we again want to play you some of his words intoning from the Senate floor. This is not that long ago. This is, in fact, four years ago when, again, the dynamics of power in Washington were different. Chuck Schumer's principled, passionate commitment to saving democracy and saving the filibuster. Well, I just listened to him. He felt very strongly back then. Not that long ago, cut 22. Now, as I've said repeatedly over the last week, repeatedly and a half, let us go no further down this road. I hope the Republican leader and I can, in the coming months, find a way to build a firewall around the legislative filibuster, Ah. which is the most important distinction between the Senate and the House. Without the 60-vote threshold for legislation, the Senate becomes a majoritarian institution like the House, much more subject to the winds of short-term electoral change. No senator would like to see this happen, so let's find a way to further protect the 60-vote rule for legislation. We have to further protect the 60-vote rule, the filibuster rule in the Senate, said Schumer, back when Republicans were in control of everything. We need to build a firewall around it. It's that important. He called the most important distinguishing factor of the United States Senate. No senator, he bellowed, wants to see this eroded any further. We must stop here. 
Very high-minded, wasn't it, of Chuck? Back in the day, four years ago, when he and his party were out of power. But sure enough, absolutely predictably, the Democrats are in charge. They are frustrated. And they are pursuing yet another unilateral, unprecedented power grab that's in their immediate short-term interest. And all of the stuff that you just heard from Schumer was a bunch of BS. He didn't believe any of it. He believes whatever he needs to believe in the moment for Democrat, left-wing, progressive power grabs. That's it. And I love the people saying, well, now do McConnell. McConnell's done the exact same thing the other way. They need to do this now because if McConnell were in charge and these Republicans were in charge, they're ruthless. They would do it in a heartbeat, except they didn't. They didn't do it in a heartbeat. They were being urged to do it by the president of the United States in their own party, and they didn't do it. That wasn't three decades ago. It was the last administration. It's important to remember the shamelessness. It's important to highlight it. It's important to review the history and the relevant context. And then to bring it back to the reality that the 2022 elections this year are very important because that guy, Chuck Schumer, he just needs a few more votes to put all of that shamelessness into action. And they will. They actually will do it in a heartbeat because they have done it before. They do the escalations. They follow through on this stuff. They don't have the votes to do it yet, which is why I think it's really dumb for him to once again talk up a big game on something that's only going to deflate and anger his own base. Because Manchin and Cinema aren't on board. I think this is sort of a desperate ploy at this point from Schumer. But what he is telling us as clearly as he can, with a lot of support from almost his entire caucus, is if we had a few more votes, the U.S. Senate would change forever dramatically and all those words that we said indignantly in the recent past meant nothing at the time and it's up to voters to make sure that they never have the opportunity to follow through on this radicalism because they will standing between the united states and that is the electorate it's you That's why this year and this election is so important. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show. Coming up, we have U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, joining us when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, final hour of the program today. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, all the ways to listen live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, or on the podcast, which is free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is 
So good. So delicious. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold in your area. You can also order online. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican, South Carolina, author of the book Opportunity Knox. He serves on multiple committees, the Finance Committee, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, Small Business Committee. He's a busy guy, but he's made some time for us today. Happy New Year, Senator. Great to have you back. Good morning, guys. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you and happy hour. That's, I love it. This is a happy yeah, hour. Exact, exactly right. You have a good Christmas. You have a good holiday season. I did. I had the privilege of spending time with my family. My nephew came home. It's always an exciting opportunity to, to spend time with your family and remind you why we love our country and, and love our communities. Grateful to have you here. I want to ask you, you're running for re-election this year. And you have said in the past that if you win, it would be your last term in the Senate. Two questions. Number one, what is your overall assessment of the political environment in this country heading into the election year since you're up this cycle? And number two, if you're still committed to that, this is my last six-year term if I win, what made you decide that? Well, the current political environment, in my opinion, is polarizing at best. The challenge that we see in the current uh, political environment in America is one that focuses too much on politicians and too little on Americans. Uh, one of the reasons why I decided to run for re-election is I wanted to make sure that we keep our, the main thing the main thing, and that is making sure that the American dream is alive, it is healthy, and it is achievable for the average person in this country. My life story speaks to the fact that not only is this the greatest nation ever designed, on God's green earth, but it keeps getting better. The American dream is more achievable for more Americans than when I was a kid, and that is a blessing to the leaders that went before me. I believe in term limits, and so while I am thankful that the good Lord and the people of South Carolina have given me an opportunity to serve this great nation, I do believe that we have to clear the way for the next person to come into office, and I'm hoping that the people of South Carolina will allow me to serve one more term before they make that decision. And because of that, I've got a laser focus on what I believe restores hope and creates opportunities, hope requiring work, by the way, because I think people need a plan, a paycheck, and a purpose in order to achieve their greatest dreams and ambitions. And if we do that, then I will have served this nation and, frankly, trying to pay it forward for those people who will come behind us and experience what America really is, a free market economy with strong education that levels the playing field. That's how we make America domestically the, the greatest story on earth. I've seen some of these polls. I'm sure you have as well. You are one of, if not the most popular U.S. senator with your constituents in the country out of 100, which is impressive. Now, I'm not asking you a question just to butter you up or to have you brag on yourself, but I'm genuinely curious, in the polarized age that you just described, what is your approach to politics that might help explain why you have been successful and why your constituents really appreciate the job you're doing and your approach to the job? Well, thank you, Guy. I, I will say my approach to the job and hopefully why the people of South Carolina have allowed me to continue to serve is because I really believe that I am called uh, to serve them. 
uh, I am not their leader unless you believe that leadership is service, servant leadership first. And that is a paradigm that I see my incredible responsibility to, to the American people and to South Carolinians specifically. And as I look at an agenda that focuses on what they need, I, I focus on the fact that we should live within our means because ultimately there's nothing compassionate about extending benefits to people at the expense of the next generation. I believe that one of the ways that we take care of America's future is by taking care of America's kids now. That means they need to be in school and their parents deserve a voice at what happens and they deserve to be able to choose the school of their choice. I believe that whether you're a rural American in uh, Cottageville, South Carolina or, or McCormick, South Carolina, or whether you're in the inner cities of Columbia, Greenville, or Charleston, we should see you the same. We should believe that greatness and the seeds of it are within you and then give you the ability to fail or succeed based on your efforts. I don't see America through the prism of color. I see, the, I see America through the prism of opportunity. I've been afforded that by good people who happen to be white and good people who happen to be black. I've been afforded that by Republicans and Democrats. So I believe that the conservative message that we espouse actually works because there's proof in the pudding, not just in my life or Ben Carson's or in yours, Guy, but the fact of the matter is that America's greatness can be measured by the exceptional people who are really ordinary folks doing extraordinary things given that extraordinary opportunity by those who went before us. A couple questions here on policy. Last time we spoke, if I recall correctly, you were still hopeful that you could get a deal done with your Senate colleague, Cory Booker, and the Democrats on police reform. Yes. That, unfortunately, did not work out. I know you worked very hard on it, but eventually you had to walk away from the bargaining table. If you could explain in a nutshell why you were unable to reach a bipartisan agreement, and then relatedly, the reason that you were having bipartisan talks is because the Senate Democrats insisted on filibustering your previous bill, saying what this was back when they were in the minority, they would not even debate the bill that you put forward, which I think was a totally sensible, at least a starting point. They would not even debate it. They filibustered it. Now they want to get rid of the filibuster, a tool that they used exclusively and repeatedly for years. Now it's a threat to democracy or something because they're in the majority. If you can just touch on both of those points, the substance on police reform and what they're doing now and the games they're playing on the filibuster. Well, no, number one, Guy, you, you, hit the, you, you distilled the, the, the most important point, which is the hypocrisy of the left as it relates to the filibuster. Now, somehow, someway, the filibuster is a racist relic. Well, that racist relic was used against police reform. In other words, it was used against the most marginalized communities where we could have improved the quality of the training for the officers, the funding for, for body cameras. They, they rejected that. So they rejected helping marginalized communities that are consistently majority-minority. So the hypocrisy of their current debate on the filibuster can, see, can be manifested in their rejection of a conversation about a bill that would improve the quality of the lives and the, the quality of the outcome for our most important uh, marginalized communities. Number two, why did it fail? This is where the rubber meets the road on police reform. I believe that the best should wear the badge and we should fund the training necessary to keep the high quality response where it is. 
they wanted to defund the police. And I say that for this reason. There were 11 sections of the bill where the left wanted to make departments ineligible for grant money, that is synonymous with reducing funding or defunding the police. And the second thing they wanted to do was to create a nationalization of local police by the way they use the accreditation process. I am not in favor of having a small town with 10 10 employees and eight officers have the same requirements as the Chicago police with thousands of officers. It doesn't make any sense. One size fits all is wrong because we have to understand the criminal behavior in local communities. We have to re- understand the response times and the locations of the, the police departments and the number of jurisdictions in one county. Now, what, what was county. their response to that? With, with all respect to, to some of the folks on the other side, it seemed like you were having pretty productive conversations for a while. The points that you're making here are just totally rational. They are not sounding at all partisan or ideological to me. It's just like, hey, here are some realities. Did they have pushback that was substantive or was there just an ultimate inability to meet in the middle or a meeting of the minds here where they had I guess an agenda that they were not willing to step away from their agenda and I think perhaps well intended in getting reform done included reforms that are not in the best interest of officers or the communities where they serve they were more interested in handcuffing the officers than handcuffing criminals. That is just, we can see the result of that, by the way, guys, throughout the country where crime is exploding and the communities of color are asking for more officer presence with fewer people. When my house was broken into as a kid, the one thing that we thanked God for were officers of integrity who showed up and cared about us. Every single day, the days I've done ride-alongs with officers, I respect and appreciate that people have a mission to run into danger when everybody else is running out. And without that as a part of the solution, without that respect for the officer, it really is hard to find common ground on the jugular issues of funding the training we want and making sure that each jurisdiction decides the quality of their officers and, frankly, the, the amount of money they have to spend on the officers. That, we can't break that in order to achieve some utopian outcome that isn't possible without local control. And Senator, I'm opposed to that. Senator Tim Scott, my guest, South Carolina Republican. We're up on a break. We'll take it very quickly. Come right back with our guest on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday we had Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Today we have Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Very happy to have him along. And Senator, a few more questions from me here. You talk a lot about opportunity, the American dream. In fact, you did earlier in our discussion here today. There are a lot of Americans who are worried about that, and they don't feel like... That is their reality right now. The cost of things are going up. They feel like the government is not meeting their needs um, and is not getting out of the way in a lot of cases when they ought to. President Biden, you gave the response to his joint session address last year. We remember some of the reaction that you got, some really vitriolic stuff from some on the left, including some racist stuff. 
That president now has a 60% disapproval rating on the economy. That's a new CNBC poll out this week starting the new year. He's at 56% disapproval overall. On pocketbook issues, it's even worse, 66% disapproval. What's your read on the Biden presidency thus far and how that plays in to the national mood, including what will certainly, on some level at least, impact your reelection race? Well, there's no doubt, Guy, that when you look at this administration, you have to give them an F for leadership, an F on the economy, an F on bringing the country together, an F on health care and COVID response. Listen, this this is a president who says we, we, we had a successful withdrawal from Afghanistan and we left Americans without our military leadership in place. We saw 13 amazing military individuals lose their lives, in my opinion, unnecessarily. We've seen literally a shutdown of our economy based on too much money driving up demand with a limited supply. What they don't understand about inflation is puzzling to me and perplexing because the inflation that we're seeing today, A, it's not transitory. Finally, we, we figured that out. B, it is caused by government sending too much money into an already hot economy, which causes it to overheat. It overheats by these examples. Number one, gas prices. They were less than $2 in 2020, December. They're now close to $3. That's a 70-plus percent increase in the cost of gas. We're looking at the reality that utilities in your house are up 30% food, whether it's meat, fish, or fruit, all up. Clothing, shoes. Why? Because the Biden administration has decided to pass a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package with only 1% for uh, COVID and 10% for COVID-related health, so 90% for their utopian wish list that leads us towards socialism. All that extra money. Yeah, we don't have tests, right? They spend all this money, $2 trillion. $2 trillion on COVID, quote-unquote, and we have a testing shortage in 2022. 1% on vaccines, 10% on COVID-related health, and obviously $1.99 on tests because literally you can't find one. Uh, And the ones you can find, according to Walmart and other stores, are going up in price. This is literally mismanaging COVID. And President Biden said on the campaign trail, trust me, American people, this will be gone. No one should be president if there's 200,000 deaths. I wish we could just replay everything he said on the campaign trail, and it would help us secure new leadership in the House and the Senate. And I think it would pave a way for the American people to have a contrast between what the candidate said and what the candidate did. And there's a big one. There's a very profound contrast, especially on that issue. It looks like for now, at least, Build Back Better, even trillions more, is dead. Maybe not fully dead. There's always a zombie effect unless Republicans win in 2022. Then it will truly be gone. But Joe Manchin, your colleague on the other side, said he hasn't even spoken with the White House about negotiations since he made an announcement that he was against Build Back Better. That, to me, is another hopeful sign. Finally, Senator Scott, last question. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of what I view as a very dark day, a very disturbing day in our nation's capital, January 6th, the Capitol riot. I just wonder, as a public servant, a member of the U.S. Senate, a Republican, what are your big lessons from that day? What should we think about tomorrow 
in your view, as we look back at what happened a year ago? Well, God, let me make this personal first on January 6th and what we should, the lessons we should take from it. Number one, I watched bloodied police officers come into the room where they had secured senators. They were out there fighting to make sure that we were safe. We should all stop and thank God that men and women put on a blue uniform to protect citizens throughout this country, and no better example of that was on January 6th. Number two, the fact that we have a great republic was demonstrated on the resolve of January the 6th. And number three, I have more confidence in the American people than I've ever had. Uh, We continue to rally after a crisis. And the rally we did and rally we will. So frankly for me, lots of lessons 700 arrests is another great lesson to learn that <clears throat> when you break the law, that, that there are consequences. And, and so I think that we should take a serious look at January the 6th. I know I have. I know I was in the building. I know the, 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 the thoughts I had on that day. I know rolling my sleeves up and looking for a weapon to defend myself was a reality. I blame the people who came in and nobody else. So I think if we just remember that we have been given the gift of the most advanced citizenship on earth, We have to make sure that we defend it in the right way, that we will be preserving the the America that we love and the America that we can trust for the next generation. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican South Carolina, up this year for re-election. Senator, we always appreciate your time. We look forward to our next talk. Thanks so much for dropping by. Happy New Year again. Thank you, guys. Happy New Year. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier, we caught up with my friend and our colleague, Kennedy, host of Kennedy on Fox Business Network. She had quite a rant that she uncorked on Monday evening. After having COVID for the second time, she went off kind of on everyone. We talked about it. Here's that conversation. One thing that I found intriguing about your monologue the other day on your show on Fox Business was just the feeling that you had physically, literally, that this was not a natural or normal virus. And I think that probably resonates with a number of people who've suffered from it. You've now gone through it twice, which really stinks. Another friend of mine, Kennedy, had it back-to-back Christmases. And he was fully vaccinated and boosted. And I, like, it's frustrating, right? You do everything that you're supposed to do that you're told, then you still have these two bouts of suffering. What was it physically that at least made you feel like, now, this is not just a cold. This is something, in your words, engineered. Yeah, so I've had bronchitis. I've had pneumonia. I've had the flu. And uh, my lungs have never felt like this. And uh, in addition to that, like... The feeling, uh, the spacey, disconnected, dissociated feeling, um, you know, it, it's something that, that people are experiencing far and wide. And, you know, I've had so many friends who, who say things like, I feel like I was drugged. You know, I, I feel like I would flip something because this is so uncomfortable and so unnatural. I've never felt this way. But you have that in combination with a dry cough and you know, a good friend of mine, her face was buzzing for two weeks. Another friend had a horrible vertigo that still hasn't gone away. 
Uh, and that's in addition to losing your sense of taste and smell. You know, and you put all of these things together. And for those of us who've yeah. had it twice, like now we have something to compare it to. And so there, there are so many similarities between both iterations of the virus that I had. And, you know, people have been getting mad at me on both sides on Twitter. But the anti-vax people are like, why would you be so stupid to put something like that in your body? And I tell them it's because I had it so bad the first time I never wanted to get it again. And so, you know, it's like I've done everything you're supposed to do. Uh, I'm a lifelong germ freak. And, you know, maybe that weakened my immune system. Who knows? Was it less bad the second time? Yes, because the Omicron variant doesn't go into your lungs the way uh, the original COVID did, and right. uh, that's what was that was that's what was so scary the first time was it took so long to get my test result back that I didn't know if I had COVID and I didn't want to go to the hospital, but I had such a hard time breathing, and you know it, it's a really scary paralyzing. Feeling. Well, and so, and this and time I got, you know, pretty bad bronchitis, but it didn't go into my lungs. And that is blessedly one of the changes with Omicron, but it's actually pretty amazing because you were, I believe, the first person that I personally knew who got it. And it was, we had been, in fact, I was exposed to COVID by you, unwittingly, obviously, in New York, shortly after our friend Mary Catherine's wedding. We were up there, I was doing your show. And I think we were on set on radio as well. And then you got super sick. It was COVID. You flash forward now. That was March 2020. It's now January 2022, almost two years later. It was almost impossible to get tests then. It's crazy hard to get tests now in a timely fashion. That was another one of your points. That, to me, is extraordinary. You got this president, and I've made this point a thousand times now, but I think we're going to keep making it as long as the problem persists. This president got elected in large measure saying, we're going to shut down the virus, we're going to bring it back to normal. These other guys totally screwed it up and they hate science. And a lot of Americans said, you know what, that sounds good to us. The drama is too much. Let's go in another direction. My full discussion with Kennedy, who's awesome, Fox Business Network host, of course, Available on our free podcast. Every day, on demand, no charge to you, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, a popular pioneering product is no more, and some of its loyalists are very upset about it. We will discuss the trajectory of smartphones when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Hope to see you in the 6 p.m. hour on Special Report. I'm joining Brett Bayer and the team on Fox News Channel this evening. Here at the radio show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every day when the show ends. We recommend that if you cannot listen live. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. As we enter the home stretch. First and foremost, let's check in with producer Christine, who we believe has COVID. Her husband has it. She ran out of tests. She can't get tested, but she has all the symptoms. All right, Christine, it's sort of like the eye doctor. Better or worse? How are you feeling today compared to yesterday? Uh, Worse today, but good news is I did a telehealth with my primary doctor last night. 
And thanks to Dr. Sapphire's suggestion, he put me on uh, medication, on steroids. So hopefully there'll be some relief by the end of today. Oh, well. The, the, co- the coughing and the congestion is really, really bad at night, especially. Is it, and I'll get to our next topic here in a second, but is this substantially worse than a really bad cold or flu that you've had in the past or kind of in that ballpark? I would still, I, I mean, I was sick two years ago with a bad case of bronchitis, maybe the flu, and I, it, it, what I felt back then is it, it was so much worse than what I'm dealing with now. This is manageable. This is, it, it's, it's a pain. It's a pain and it's really frustrating, but um, I'm not freaking out. I remember back then really freaking out, you know, it was bad. There were, there were nights that I was, you know, thinking I had to go to the hospital. So, um, this is, this is a pain, but I have to say, I mean, and hopefully we'll hopefully because of my vaccine, it's not as bad as it could have been. And, uh, hope the, uh, yeah, and it could be Omicron. It probably is Omicron. And he said it that is. that's you know, more mild, right? So, so there you go. You've got a good combination of factors there. It could be worse. Let's put it that way. And you're a trooper mm-hmm. just uh, charging through here and continuing to work and helping with the show. This is a story that we flagged yesterday. We didn't have time to squeeze it in. It's always funny. You have a three hour show. It's like, how do you run out of time for anything? Believe us. Every day there's stuff we want to talk about, and we run out of time for it. This one we wanted to revisit because I think it's interesting. Quiet Wyatt had flagged it because, of course, it was in the Wall Street Journal. Headline, Blackberry diehards struggle with final blow. Fans of that, you know, that phone, the smartphone with a little keyboard, parting with devices or turn them into art because they stopped working January 4th. So this was their final few days with these devices that they've coveted that they've loved for many many years in some cases blackberry had told all of their users that this was going to be the drop dead week they were going to stop working would no longer function they would have to use blackberry phones running on android software moving forward if you were part of the old school then your devices would not work any longer And there were some definite BlackBerry loyalists or dead-enders, whatever you want to call them, who were sad about this, who were really upset that they couldn't use that phone anymore. I have a buddy of mine who loved his BlackBerry for years. They were all the rage. I mean, they were ubiquitous. They were all over the place in corporate America, on Capitol Hill. And then technology moved on. The one thing I will say about a BlackBerry, because I had a BlackBerry, maybe one or two different iterations of BlackBerry, gosh, how long ago? Ten years ago? Something like that. My favorite thing about it was the tactile keyboard. I was always better at typing on the actual little keyboard that they had at the bottom than I have ever gotten on my iPhone. I was really bad on the iPhone at first. Like the fat thumbs problem would just hit all these different letters that I didn't want. Then you'd have autocorrect. So annoying. I got better at it, but it's still an issue. BlackBerry was always better for me, but c'est la vie. It hasn't been an option for a while. I've been over on the iPhone team for years at this point, but I just found it funny, these interviews that the journal did with some of these guys and gals who were just uh, addicted to what they used to call a crackberry, 
and don't feel like the newer technology is actually better for their needs. And some of them are making them, you know, paperweights or into artwork in their house to memorialize this phone that they used. And Christine, you said this reminded you of something that you just did in your household because you're getting ready to move. You're in the process of selling your house. We are. And we've been, you know, in the attic, taking everything down, going through boxes of what we're going to throw out and keep. And I found a box of, first of all, do you remember beepers? I don't even know. You might even be too young for that. I mean, I remember them. I never had one. So I found a box with Bobby and my beepers, a couple of the old ones. And then we found, you know, all our old cell phones. And Megan had a field day. Wait, hang on. Can I ask you just now I'm realizing is a beeper and a pager the same thing or are those different products? Oh, it's the same thing. I think they called it a beeper, but the adults called it pagers. Uh, Megan had a field day looking at these phones, especially um, the flip phone. Do you remember how, you know, probably in the early 2000s, those are very expensive. And she opened it up. She goes, so what? It rang and you had to open it. And then what? She had no clue, and then she looked at the number pad. I love flip phones, by the way. Those are probably my favorite of the whole evolution. I loved a flip phone better than probably a BlackBerry or a Palm Pilot. I thought that was a really good, solid, reliable piece of machinery. And you had very rudimentary games you could play, like that little worm that went around. I mean, oh, it's, it's amazing. If, if you were really advanced, I think there were a few flip phones that eventually had really crappy cameras on them and you could take like grainy photos. It's extraordinary how far this technology has come and how fast it's moved. But the flip phone, in my view, is a classic. I actually agree with you. I always loved a flip phone. I felt comfortable talking on it, but she didn't understand why there were numbers. She said, what are the numbers for? Because don't forget, she only knows iPhones where you go through and say, hey, call mom or hey, call dad. So I said, Megan, each phone number, each person you are calling has a phone number. She was like, no, I know. I remember you told me to memorize your number. Uh, I said, that's what you would do. You would dial the number. And then you would hit send. And her mind was blown. She still couldn't comprehend. She didn't get it. She had no that- Makes me feel so old when she's eight and she doesn't even understand how phone numbers work. Do you not have a, a house phone? Do you not have a landline? No. Why, do you? No. But I thought no. maybe, you, I mean, you're, you're older. Let's be honest about that. So I thought that, you know, maybe as, as a 40-something, you would still be clinging to the landline. I don't know. No, we do not. <laughs> we do not have a landline. Uh, no, we do not have a house phone. I was actually hoping I had one of my old, you know, portable phones with the base to show her, but we did, we must have thrown those out in our last apartment. So she, I mean, forget it if I had to show her a rotary phone. Remember those? Oh, yeah, I used to, to use that it? at my grandparents' house. That was uh, that too. was complicated. You had to really concentrate yeah. when you were like, wait, which one did I just do? Then you do it all the way around, then it zigs back around, then you're like, okay, now here's a four, that's a shorter one, that's an easy one. And they had their rotary phone in a phone closet where you would go into like this little tiny room where the phone was set up. That is really old school. I think they probably still exist for like collectors or something, but that is... I mean, we're talking about many generations ago. 
Did you ever have a razor? I did not have a razor, but Bobby did. So, and yeah, Bobby those were like a status symbol for a while, the oh, razor. Oh, yes. That, and also, Bobby had, we found his Nextel. Do you remember those where you could actually, like, walkie-talkie with other oh, Nextel yeah. people? Oh, yeah. Was it yellow? Was it yellow for some reason? No, you remember it being black. Like black and yellow. For some reason, in my mind, that's oh, what the Nextel was. was. But, like, a little, yeah, you could have it be a phone or a walkie-talkie, which I never Nextel. had. No, me neither. No. Judgey Joyce wasn't paying for that. No way. And I had also, remember the old Nokia uh, phone? The little one that you could change colors on the faces of the phone? Oh, yep. Yep. And you would have different color sort of swag or yep. what's the word I'm looking for? Accessories that you could swap <laughs> out. And I would occasionally do that like, oh, I'm going to make mine blue this week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The other thing that I find interesting about all of this and the, the sort of direction that this has gone in the arc, for a while, the whole goal was to get the cell phone smaller and smaller, right? But now I've noticed that the smartphones are getting bigger and bigger. I think some of the standard size iPhones are almost like mini tablets at this point, which I don't like. I went out of my way. My current iPhone is the smaller version not i guess they might even call it the mini it's not that small it's the size of a normal smartphone in my mind but it is clearly smaller than some of these gargantuan things that they have and i get it it's a high processing unbelievably functional quick almost miraculous computer that you have in your pocket i just feel like a phone shouldn't be bigger than a certain size because it gets cumbersome but people make fun of me. They're like, why is your phone so small? Because this is the size a phone is supposed to be. No, I 100% agree with you on that. We've been working all these years to get smaller. I'm not, I'm not going back to bigger. No way. Do you remember the old SNL sketch where it was like Jimmy Fallon and someone else working at a high-end boutique in New York, and their boss is Will Ferrell, who just looks completely ridiculous, and he's dressed in all black, and he comes in on some sort of a scooter, and his phone rings, and he answers his phone, and it is the size of maybe a thimble, and he opens it up, and was making fun of that whole trend. I remember cracking up so hard at that, and of course, Jimmy Fallon being Jimmy Fallon, and he incidentally tested positive for COVID, so hoping that he recovers well. I just saw that headline today, but Jimmy Fallon really would struggle to keep it together on the set. He was one of the guys who would always like lose his composure fastest. And that sketch was a complete disaster on that front. Even Will Ferrell broke. You can bring it up perhaps on YouTube. I just felt like it was a fun, kind of nostalgic conversation about technology that is still very relevant today. But some of it, I mean, it really does feel like you're talking about a relic on a BlackBerry and this news hook, even though it wasn't that long ago, I say bring back the real keyboards. And I guess there are some where that's still an option or you can accessorize with that. I think that that's a helpful item. That's just me. Oh, Cookie, you're not alone. We are both definitely getting old. If you have probably Quiet Wyatt is sitting there saying, what on earth are they talking about? Nextel, Razor, Flip Phone? Maybe even BlackBerry might be before his time. And then, my gosh, your daughter doesn't even know how a phone number works. And it's not her fault at all. It just seems so basic, but she's never had to really deal with that. Oh, it's amazing. 
Anyway, we are out of time. As I mentioned, special report tonight on the panel. Hope to see you all there. You can tune in live in the next hour or set your DVRs. Back here, same time, same place, on the radio. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.